Well, good morning. Whoa, that is loud. I'm not used to that. Um, good morning. It is an absolute joy. We, we do pray for you guys. I mean, weekly, a lot of familiar faces that I see this morning, and uh, it just stirs my heart, and I am uh, humbled and uh, just thankful to be here. Uh, so with that end, if you would please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Timothy, which should be pretty familiar to most of you. I think you guys are working through that. We just finished that up as a church. And we're going to be in chapter 3, and in verse 14 and 15, we're going to be dialing in on specifically verse 15, but we're going to read the whole, starting in verse 14. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And Paul says to to Timothy, I am writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. And this ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is the very foundation upon which we build our lives And I just pray for your help now. I can do nothing apart from you. And I just pray that I would be getting out of the way, that your spirit might speak clearly and powerfully through me, and that all those here, that we would work together to understand uh, not just your word, but the one who has written this word, that we might know you better, to love Christ more and to follow you more faithfully. Uh, We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. So the topic I have been given for this morning's message is the great omission. Now, to understand what is omitted, it would be helpful to know what has been committed. And I think it's, uh, we can all see that this is referencing the great commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we know that Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has called his disciples to go and, or, to go and make more disciples of the nations advancing his kingdom. What then is being implied in the phrase, the great omission, well, is that the church is not obeying her king, is not making disciples. And so it's really not a trivial thing, because if the great commission is really a great one, then we could also say that this great omission is really a great thing also. Now, our family, and we actually just got back, we love to, uh, we go to the beach. We try to make it a beach trip every year. Um, one of my favorite things to do, I pretty much have to do it, is to go see a lighthouse. And being a pastor, probably, you know, I think any Christian, you see a lighthouse and there's just a lot of, there's a lot of things. You look at that thing and say, man, there is a lot of gospel truth that can be proclaimed in that. There are good metaphors, analogies with that. And so with that, and relevant to our topic this morning, I would ask you to imagine a scenario. This whole idea of this great omission. Imagine a scenario where a wealthy and powerful merchant invested much time, energy, and resources into building a lighthouse. And this was done to help mariners find their way who were traveling from all parts of the known world. This businessman had valuable riches that many were in search of. Sailors would voyage through raging seas and fierce storms to acquire what this merchant possessed. Now, because this merchant was also very wise, he built his lighthouse on the most immovable rock cliff he could find. He then used only the best materials to build this lighthouse for the purpose at which it was to fulfill. 
It had the weather, violent winds, and rain all the while illuminating the night sky with that singular focused beam of light, that light that could pierce through the darkness and the cloudiest night, that light that the sailors began to call faithful, that light that always shined and was there to lead them to safety. It could be counted on to shine bright no matter the situation, for its light was good and the foundation upon which it stood was solid. Now, a lighthouse, as we can all understand, does not function by itself. Right? It needs lighthouse workers. Now, this merchant, being wise, he understands this, and so he went and found and trained some men himself. Now, previously, all these men were pirates, and they came only to steal that which this merchant possessed. But the last stretch of sea was quite dangerous, and these men caught, were caught off, got caught off, or went off course in the fog and nearly dashed amidst the rocks. But the light from that lighthouse saved them. So these men began to see this merchant in an an entirely new light. They determined not to steal from him anymore, but rather to serve him. And they were convinced of the necessity of this lighthouse and how useful it could be to wayward mariners. Now, initially, these men were relentless. They were committed to their duties. But there were seasons where there was just not a whole lot of ships coming in. Not many arriving. And so to fill the time, they began to occupy themselves with other things. And they were getting a whole lot of ideas with this too. And like I said, like our family, we love to go to lighthouses. But hikers, visitors, can be distracting to those who are working at the lighthouse. And these lighthouse workers, well, they initially recognize this. Because these hikers and these travelers who are coming to behold these engineering marvels, where they were more focused on the living conditions on the inside and the landscaping on the outside and the, and the beautiful views, and the visitors were not really concerned with the purpose of the merchant. Now, these lighthouse workers, recognizing this, sent them away. But as more time passed, these travelers began to influence these lighthouse workers more. And they finally convinced them that their living conditions were better do their work better. They began to justify all kinds of things. Playing cards, leisure, now all necessary, right? Because we all need a break so that we can come back and work for our employers with more diligence. But the problem was, as the living conditions increased, the landscaping attended to more regularly and the games becoming more numerous and frequent, well, the lamp began to be neglected. The wick wasn't trimmed. The mirror and the glass not cleaned as it ought to be. Holes in the roof were beginning to let the rain in. And the lighthouse was in danger of not being able to fulfill the purpose in which the merchant had set out to build it. Now you can see there that there was a singularity of purpose. That's why the merchant built the house. Initially, the men working there, they shared in that, this singularity of purpose. But over time, the strangers to this merchant and his intentions began to influence these men, and they threatened to turn this lighthouse into really no lighthouse at all. It was more of like a, just a, a weekend getaway or an Airbnb. It was becoming a shell. So on the outside, it might hold the form of a lighthouse, but it did not function as a lighthouse. The purpose of a lighthouse is to shine light and prevent anything from extinguishing that light. That is its purpose, brothers and sisters, and it's singular in nature. Now, the parallel, I think we can see to the church is quite obvious. All right, there's a singularity of purpose to which the church ought to be consumed with if she is to call herself a church. 
to not be about the business of God's intentions and why he built the church is to be negligent as these lighthouse workers were. They, like us, are easily distracted and forgetful. Focusing, what we need to be, is focusing on guarding and heralding the beautiful light of God's word. Many churches in America today are desperate of wicks needing trimmed and glass cleaned. We need to be about the business, again, of heralding and guarding the word of God, the beautiful light of God's word, to be about the business of the Great Commission. Now, the main point which I am hoping to drive home this morning, if we can walk away with one thing, it is this. A singularity of purpose with, with respect to the will of God for his church is the antidote to the great omission. Singularity of purpose with respect to the will of God for his church is the antidote to the great omission. Now, I think we can probably all uh, agree that up until, well, actually, even recently, that, the, that America has been pretty much a Christian's paradise. It's not, it's not normal for uh, to Christians to really live in like such prosperous and flourishing times, right? Sp- specifically within, within America and any time in re- redemptive history, really. And because of this, I think we've forgotten a very basic truth that's become like, in a, in a lot of ways, melatonin to an already groggy state. We have hikers coming to our lighthouse, coming to the church, strangers to our God, and they have, they have influenced us in a lot of different ways. In the same way, you think of Israel was to be a light to the nations. But the influence, the, the, the neighboring pagan nations began to influence her and extinguish her light. And the church in America is running that same danger. She is in danger of becoming a shell and no church at all. She might look like it on the outside, but in many ways she's forgotten her purpose. And even if she does know it, it's in danger of becoming a purpose among many. You know, it's not, it's not singular. It's not focused in, the, in that one beam of light. It's, we've, we've been distracted with, with numerous different things. And so I hope that our text this morning, specifically that last part of verse 15, where it says the church of the living God, the, the pillar and support of truth, is going to help us answer what this purpose is. Why did God build this church and to what end? Now, before we get there, let's, if you would look over, just a couple verses past, in chapter 4. In the first part of chapter 4, to give a little bit of context, uh, verses 1 and 2, and it says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars. Now, first off, we have this latter times, these later times, and we don't want to really get into an end times debate here. Paulette, Ryan, do that. Uh, but I hope that we can all agree that we are in them now. Right? We, are, we are in the last times now. And it says that in these times, there was going to be men. They're going to come in like these visitors, these, these hikers, these false teachers, these false men. They're going to come in and they're going to want to play Christian. Hypocrites acting like something they're not. They're going to come into the church and they're going to influence her in negative ways. Okay, and their, and their wants and their, and their desires are not going to be the wants and desires of God. Now, there is a cross-reference here to this specific, these couple verses, and it's in 2 Timothy 3, and it's verses 1 through 7. I'm not going to read all those, but it's gonna, you're going to find there it says that same time frame, the last days, and it says in there, there's a, there's a phrase there, difficult times will come. 
difficult times. The emphasis here is the same that we have here in 1 Timothy uh, 3, or in, in verse 4, but the same one, First and Second Timothy, same time frame. Last days, we're in them now, not so much that the waves and the wind and the rain are coming, storming against the lighthouse, but rather that same idea, these hikers are coming, these visitors, and they're coming and they're threatening to turn the lighthouse into, again, a shell, this Airbnb, okay? And for their will for the lighthouse is not the same of the owner and the merchant, same hypocrites. And what's interesting is what you'll find in verse 5 when it's defining a little bit about these people who these men are, it says they have, a, they have a form of godliness. Now, that word form in the original, you might morphosis. That might be, you know, pretty familiar. Think of metamorphosis. We think of caterpillars turning into uh, butterflies, right? You have this specific form, and it's changing form, and with the form is changing also the function. And so we think about the same thing with respect to these lighthouse workers. They have a form. They look like lighthouse workers on the outside, They're dressing in the same stuff. They're speaking the same language, the Christianese, and they're coming into the lighthouse during these times, and they're influencing to such an extent that it's threatening that the lighthouse is not going to be any lighthouse at all. So again, I say all this because it's not, they're not coming in confessing atheism. They're not coming in confessing in hatred of God. No, they're coming through the same doors that you and I came through this morning, sitting in our midst and influencing the church to distract her, that she would no longer be singular in purpose, but rather just uh, fluttering from this thing into that. The church in America today is being influenced by men playing Christian. They're not committed to the same task, mission, that God is in making disciples of the nations. They're not committed to being Uh, a light to a lost and dying world. We have millions, brothers and sisters, dying in the raging seas around us, and we are not committed as we ought to be to the business of rescue as our God is. You're going to get to this. First Timothy, actually, I think you just already preached on it. Uh, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? To save sinners. To save sinners. That's why he came why we have this great commission then to follow our king. But instead of this singularity of purpose, instead of this being committed to the great commission, well, it has been replaced with a million other things. Has it not? Endless programs, barbecues and conferences and retreats and coffee hours and improvements and lighting and seating and the beautification of the outside. Not that anything, not that any of these things are bad and of themselves. They're not. There are, some of these things are good things. But when they distract and they move us from following that singular thing, that one great commission that God has called us to, then it becomes a terrible thing. And it leads to the fulfillment, not of the great commission, but the great omission. So what do we do about this? What do we do? Well, we ought to remember why and for what purpose the merchants built the lighthouse. Why did God build the church? Why are we here today? So look back with me where we began in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. I'm going to work through our text, and notice the first thing that we're going to deal with here is the, is the merchant, the owner of the lighthouse, which is the church of the living God. Literally, in the original, it's the living God's church, the emphasis on the living God. Emphasis not on you, not on me, the emphasis on the living God. Who is this living God? And we ought to camp here a minute. 
This is the very living God that spoke the universe into existence with His holy and pure and good word. This is the God, the living God of Deuteronomy 5.26 when He speaks to Moses and the people from Mount Sinai. And it made me think of this last night. We had some thunderstorms. I could not get to sleep last night because God had determined to bring thunder and lightning over the roof of our home. And then he brought it again at three o'clock in the morning. And I could not help but think about this moment right here. I mean, I would have been trembling. Like I hear God speak in the thundering and lightning from Sinai. To which the people say as they hear and fear for who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. This living God, which in the previous chapter it says of him, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. This is a God who used this little tiny man, Moses, to to deliver over two million Jews from the world's superpower. And then in one broad stroke of a divine justice, destroys the political, economic, and military foundations of Egypt. Destroys Pharaoh and his military. That living God. This is the living God of Joshua 3.10. Joshua says this, By this you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Hivite and the Perizzite and the Girgashite and the Amorite and the Jebusite. Point, God's going to take these once enslaved people, these little nobodies. They've not been trained militarily, and he's going to take them into a land which is established. They have armies. They have defenses and citadels that they can war against anyone who dare think that they're going to uh, come and war against them. They are prepared for, for battle. And yet he's going to take these little nomads in there no, and, and lead them in there to destroy them. So that what? So they, there, there would be no mistake who it was that was, uh, who that we could attach the victory to. That living God. That's the living God of the famous battle between David and Goliath. You remember the scene, that ruddy little youth, and he gets upset. Why? He doesn't care who it is, but somebody is taunting who? The living God. That's what he says. You taunting the armies of the living God? Are you insane? With a fearless faith, David says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted, to which then God does what? Takes this behemoth of a man, Goliath, and delivers him, destroys him, into the hands of what? Gives him into the hands of this ruddy little shepherd boy? That living God. This is the living God of Daniel. Daniel defies the king. That is okay to do when they stand contrary to God's word. He defies the king and throws, and he is thrown into the lion's den. God miraculously preserves his life, to which then forces Darius the king to say what? I declare to all, in his nation, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. Brothers and sisters, the New Testament church, this is the living God. It's his church. It's the living God's church. It's not your church. It's not my church. We don't get to do with it what we please. We don't get to rearrange the furniture. We don't get to change what the purpose is. It's his the living God established his church to fulfill a specific function, and it is to be singular in nature. Unlike the ungodly men described in 1 Timothy, the form of the church was designed for the specific function of the church. 
The church, what the church is, is a direct function of what God designed the church to be. So what is that? Well, let's get into this. You notice this living God's church, what it, well, it's the pillar and support of truth. The pillar and the support of truth. Now, this gets into defining exactly what the church ought to be in the business doing, biblically, right? This, here's your purpose, but it is, it is a little bit misleading. There's no definite article there. So it's not the pillar, the support, right? It ought to be a pillar, a support, because we know there's but one foundation for the church, right? That is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 11, excuse me. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's the foundation upon which we live, breathe, die, fight for everything, right? But consider this word pillar. Now, this, this imagery would have been especially potent. I'm sure Ryan has probably talked about this in introducing you to the Ephesus, right? Uh, Paul sends uh, Timothy there to put things in order because things are all out of whack. The church is all upside down. Um, and this church which is talking about this pillar that's supposed to be established there. Well, you might remember this is home to that great temple Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the world, right? And it's being held up by these massive, like hundreds of these massive 60-foot pillars. They're huge. And now Ephesus, this is like a, the cosmopolitan hub. This would be like D.C. and Vegas, Dubai, all these ones that kind of rolled up in together. There are people coming from all over the known world to this place. And as they would be approaching, whether land or sea, what they, what they would probably see first is the temple. Why? Because the pillars are holding that thing up. That's what pillars do. That's what form gives us function, right? They're not designed to hold themselves up. They're designed to hold something else up. And so that as they hold the temple up, it is for all to see. Now think about that in the same context of, of Galatians. Paul says what? He talks about Peter, John, and James, reported to be what? Pillars. Why? Because they are in the business of doing what? Holding up the word of God, that Christ might be seen, that all men might bow to him, both in the church, behind the pulpit, and out in the world. That is what pillars do. They herald the word of God. So to be a pillar is to be a herald. Let the lost ships in the distance see. But not just, again, heralding from the pulpit, but heralding in the streets. Listen to uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. What does he say? We ought actually go into the streets and lanes and the highways. We ought, we act, we ought to actually go there. For there are lurkers in the hedges, tramps on the highways, whom we shall never reach unless we pursue them into their own domains. We need to actually take this beautiful thing called God's word and take it out there to be a herald, a light that those perishing in the seas would see and come to Christ. Again, to be a pillar is to be a herald. The church is that, and it is also a support or a bulwark, a foundation, a buttress, literally that which provides a firm base. Okay, so many, many believe protector, guardian might be um, better suited to help us really capture the meeting. Um, the idea, it's not so much the wind, the rain, the rain and the seas, but what we've been talking about, we have visitors. We have people coming, trying to infiltrate, dressed in lighthouse workers' clothes, uh, chipping away at the foundation. But they're coming and they're attacking. She is to withstand, though. So the church 
and she is to be this support. She has to withstand those. When people come and they're trying to distract you, keep the doors bolted shut. But then when they're on the outside chipping away at your foundation or if they're flinging arrows at the light, you might actually have to go out, but you're protecting and you're guarding the truth. So you be careful who comes through those doors and who stands in this pulpit. It needs to be that you're protecting the truth of God's word. That very thing that you're heralding, you have to actually also guard. So then the picture is what? You have a lighthouse. The light needs to shine so the people lost, dying in the raging seas can find their way to their master, right? And you are charged as a lighthouse worker to stand and to don't let anybody come in and distract it and turn you into something that you're not. People are coming on the inside trying to infiltrate and be deceptive, but they're also, again, jackhammering, pounding at the, at the foundation and flinging arrows. They're coming in your task, and it is specific. It is singular in nature. You keep the light shining no matter the cost. That is what we ought to be in the business of doing, brothers and sisters. You ought to be about the business of heralding and guarding the truth of the gospel. This is how the Great Commission is to be fulfilled. This is what the church needs to be consumed with. A church that does not do this is but a shell. It is form without function. To which you might ask the question, is it, is it a church at all? The church must guard, protect, defend, fight for, herald, proclaim, preach, teach the word of the living God. This is less about the building you occupy, how many programs you have. This is not about, as we talked about in Bible study this morning, uh, Roman Catholicism. This is not about apostolic secession. The question is, are you guarding and heralding the truth of the gospel, the person and work of Christ? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ, do you guard them? Do you cherish them? Do you love them? That's the test. Does it define you or are you but a shell? Because when you fail to execute this, this mission, the Great Commission, you succeed in fulfilling the devils, which is the great omission. You become not an instrument in the hands of God, you become an instrument in the hands of the devil. Not a light to the world to lead them to Christ, to safety, but rather a a tool in the hands of the devil as your neglect leaves ships crashing against the rocks and souls drowning and sinking into hell. There are many institutions in the world today there are some created by God, others by men. But what, what is it that stands at the pinnacle of God's economy? It's the church. I don't care what the government tells you. I don't care what professors or some news anchor tells you. I don't care what some pastors say. The church is a prize, that one that ought to be guarding and heralding. We don't shut our doors. We are a light to the world. The church prevents the truth from being forgotten in the minds of men. I mean, think about that. Truth, truth itself would fade into oblivion if the truth did not exist, or the church did not exist on earth. So again, that church that stands and guards that beautiful light, stands on that foundation, is a prize in her maker. But let me ask you, are you that? Okay, are you? Do you guard and herald the truth? Are you singular in your purpose? Now, the church is made up of many members. It is a living entity. The whole cannot be what its members are not. So I ask this to you specifically, Christians sitting there now today, individually, are you that? What is it 
that captures your affections? What is it that you guard and herald? Ask yourself personally that specific question. What do you guard and herald? Is it the same as the living God? When drag queen hour comes to your city, do you confront it with the truth of God's word? When babies, image bearers of God, your neighbor, are ripped apart and torn to pieces tomorrow, not a mile from here, do you go preach the word? Do you reach out to those women, those dying and drowning in sin? Do you reach them? Are you a herald with God's word? When the pride parade comes marching down your streets, did you go to confront it, understanding what it is? I mean, what is marriage? Is it not to be a picture and a witness to the world of Christ and his bride? Is he worth it that you would go confront that to bring the gospel into conflict with the world? With the critical race theory infiltrating our schools, we don't know up from down when it comes from girls and boys and what our roles are. What about in our city councils and the tyranny? Do you go and do you speak? Are you a herald? Are you guarding it when it's attacked? What is most on your lips? What about when you're at work? Or is your Christianity the private type? Attackers hammering against the foundations of the lighthouse. Archers slinging arrows at the light. Pirates attacking lost ships in the distance. But that really doesn't concern you because you have a card game to attend. The Cowboys are playing the Steelers, don't you know? Now, you might think that's a stretch. Who would call themselves a Christian and actually be concerned with that stuff as opposed to, well, I'll tell you this, our our family, we used to drive, uh, we live quite a ways away, um, but like Paul Washer says, go to the church that's closer to the Bible, not your address, right? So we were driving like an hour and a half for over a year to a church, not a mile from here. If I told them your name, the pastor there, uh, you would know them. We would say that they are a solid church in our community, one that we would probably partner with also. We went there for a long time. That is when God uh, showed me this atrocity of abortion and awakened me and, and showed my uh, indifference and my apathy to where I had to confess and, I had, and, and, and repent. Um, and so I started going and, and trying to reach these women, uh, trying to share the gospel with them. And so I went to the, to the pastor and the elders, and I asked them, hey, will you come alongside? Would you just support us? Maybe just say something during announcements if anybody wants to come. Hey, I'm a point of contact. They didn't even want to touch the subject. It's controversial, isn't it? Now, your neighbor, not a mile from here, where you worship on a Sunday, they're going to tear, tear your neighbor apart the, the very next day, but it doesn't concern you. Now, I pleaded, and I pleaded, and I was patient, and they finally agreed. They told me a specific time, and so I met, we waited after church we, to link up with the elders. One elder wouldn't even come because it was Super Bowl Sunday. And so the pastor comes in and he tells me, I only have a couple minutes. And I said, brother, you told me, like we had, you, you told me that we had this time set to, to talk about this. This is, this is a grave evil in our nation. We need to meet it with the gospel. Well, I told my wife I would go help because we have people coming over for a Super Bowl party. Brother, we're talking about image bearers of God. I know, but I told my wife, I know, but you told me first. But this is where we are, brothers and sisters. Let me ask this question. If Redeeming Grace Church ceased to exist tomorrow, would anyone notice? Would it impact your community at all? Are you making a dent so much? Is your light so bright that Satan would notice? Or is it just things just go on as they they do? 
people continually lost in the fog and the confusion of this upside-down, crazy world. And it is a fog. Brothers and sisters, it is a fog right now. We need clarity of speech. We need the truth of the gospel piercing through. That is our only hope. Now, this is that point in the sermon that normally this is where, this is where the, the pastor comes up and he starts charging, right, with the repent of your apathy and your indifference, right? We need, we need to turn and we need to follow Christ unashamedly. We need to guard and we need to herald. Um, well, I, want, I, I don't want to really go there so much as I want to go somewhere else. That's not where I want to end. I'm going to leave you with an indicative, trusting God will move you to action because you are so captivated with the indicative, the indicative actuating the imperative. What in the world are you talking about, pastor? Well, this is something we covered in our church just recently. I think it's critically important, uh, often neglected. If you would look again in First Timothy chapter 3. Now, we talked on, uh, specifically, we were dialing in on verse 15. And then we touched on uh, the start of chapter 4, but squished right in between those two squished right in the middle is the bedrock to which all this must be built. The foundation itself, everything thus far said, the foundation upon which this lighthouse, the church, must be built is found here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And it says this, Paul says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He who was revealed in the flesh, Christ's incarnation and earthly ministry, was vindicated in the spirit, his resurrection, proving that he conquered his enemies and his life and sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. Seen by angels, it can refer to his birth, earthly ministry, or ascension. The point is, God or Jesus drew the attention of not just the earthly courts, but the heavenly ones. Now, there are different ways to break this up. I want to pause here a moment, because what is agreed on by all scholars is this is all about the gospel. This is all about Christ. This is all about the person and work of Christ. And now what's amazing, what I love about this part is that in the grammar, it's, it's, it's an aorist indicative. The point is aorist being it's past tense, okay? So this is something that happened then. It's already been accomplished. Now, the in- indicative, the mood stressed in the original is that it's an actual fact. So when the author, the author is conveying this truth, he's saying that this is, this is truth. It actually happened. So this is a fact that happened back then. The living God actually came and became man. That actually happened. And he lived a perfect life, and he went to a cross, and he died, and he actually rose again. He actually sits in the heavens as king, and he calls men to turn from sin and trust in him. That actually happened. That happened. This is the foundation upon which it all stands. The living God actually became a man. It's the bedrock. It's our common confession, most certainly and undeniably. It's this confession that we hold. Why? Because we are so captivated by the substance of it. Christ, the indicative, the historical truth, the fact, the reality of Jesus. But let me ask, does this still stir your heart? Or is this that part of the sermon that you check out? Well, I've heard it so many times. I've heard the gospel. I can't tell you how many people I've taught, yeah, I know the gospel. I know the, as if you're tired with it. I mean, ask yourself, does it inflame, though, anything inside of you yet? When you hear about just Christ, we talk about just him and just what he did. 
there was an incident recorded by Jonathan Edwards. And he, and he writes this. And I, and I believe this is, I've read about this before, and I think it has to do with the, when he's just meditating and thinking on the, just the incarnation. So just that one part in Christ's life, just the incarnation, the living God becoming man. And listen to what he says. He says, once I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk in divine contemplation and prayer. I had a view that was, for me, extraordinary. I saw the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man. And his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared inevitably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. This kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to me to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated. I wanted to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. Let me ask, do you think Jonathan Edwards really needed an imperative to preach Christ? Or was the indicative, the truth of what he was and who Christ is enough? And this takes us to the second part because I would hope that it does this. The second part really, so that the first we have the person and work of Christ and the second part of this is a person and work of Christ proclaimed. The obligation of the church, singularity of purpose. The Great Commission proclaimed among the nations. Now, yes, originally referring to the apostles, the disciples who would follow in their footsteps, the preaching the gospel to the nations, but this is also the church, then picking up the church, the torch, and fulfilling the Great Commission. But look at this one, believed on in the world. And this is still, again, past tense. This is awesome. This is one of my favorite things. Christ saves through the preaching of the gospel. Now, this is, though, astounding when you think about it, okay? So you're going to come to the sinner who is that pirate, you know, coming to kill and to destroy, to steal from the merchant, hates him. He's coming, and you're going to preach this gospel message, right? Because it's so astounding to the sinner that you're going to preach Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, his reign. And you're going to preach that to him, and then you're going to say, repent of your sin, turn from everything you love, and follow this king. What in the world would cause them to do that? Nothing. And yet they do. It says they actually did that. They've, it was proclaimed and they came. That is astounding. That is the grace and power of the living God. Doing what? Striking up residents and his enemies. And then bringing them on board to serve in his lighthouse. The gospel is believed on in the world. Praise God. The light pierces the darkness and wayward sinners are saved. Quoting from Hosea, Paul says this in Romans 9. He says, I, speaking of the living God will call those who were not my people, my people, and who, her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. 
And they are brought into the household of God, the church of the living God, the living God's church. The pillar and support, the guardian and herald of truth, to which they now have an allegiance, and all for what? This last line, taken up in glory. What's it all about? Christ gets all the glory. It ain't about you, it ain't about me, it's about Christ. He gets it all. And this speaks not only to his ascension, but his continual reign and glory now. Christ now intercedes for his people, putting all of his enemies under his feet, and doing so as the church faithfully executes her mission, that guardian and herald of truth. So again, do you really need an imperative from God to guard and herald the truth of this great God? Consider, you were lost. You were lost at sea during a raging storm. Sin was the concrete shoes holding you down, the devil casting iron chains of sin upon you, dragging you down to hell, death. I think a better picture is you were dead, probably, right? Because we're good, reformed Calvinists. We're dead, cannot do anything, the bottom of the sea, and God saved you. The living God, Christ himself, plunged himself into those waters. He drank the full cup of the flood waters of God's wrath. He shattered the concrete shoes. He broke the chains. And then he lifted you out of the waters. He brought you up on shore. He breathed life into your lungs. He stripped the rags from you. He clothed you in his righteousness. He has enlisted you into his kingdom and his family to call you to do what? To be a guardian and herald of truth. Why? Because he loves sinners. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then, so would you do the same thing? And he looks at you then. He says, will you come with me? I have more out there that I love. Will you come and help me? With a singularity of purpose and the same one that I had when I came to get you. Will you come? Help me. Keep the light shining, brothers and sisters. That is our job singularity of purpose with respect to the will of God for his church is the antidote to the great omission. Please pray with me. Father, you are, you are the living God. Who are we? Uh, we were nothing. Uh, we were dead, deserving none of your grace, none of your mercy, but you are the living God and you love to deliver those, your enemies, those who despise you and hate you, were enemies of the cross, dead in sin, and yet you have saved us through Christ. And God, I just pray that you would work in us a zeal, that we would desire uh, to put away all the other things, that we would be singular in purpose in the way that we live our lives, all of our lives, and that we would help one another encourage each other to do that, that we might be pleasing to you, glorifying, glorifying you in all that we do, and that at the end of the day, your name would be magnified among the nations as you save sinners. So God, we love you, we praise you, In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.